welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everyone, great episode for you this week. So my guest is Dr. Ash Patel. So I've known Ash for quite a long time. Uh, originally, he was an anaesthetist, the same as me. He then was one of the very first employees over at Babylon after a super interesting conversation he had with Ali Parser in a hotel bar. He tells us all about that on the episode. He then went into venture capital, so he worked at Mercia uh, Technologies and now is a VC at Optum Ventures, investing specifically in health tech. So on the episode, we talk about all sorts of cool stuff, Ash's background, Optum Ventures and the fund and what they do. So loads for everybody listening, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're in a startup, whether you're looking to break into investment or understand more, this episode's kind of got it all. So hope you enjoy. How are you doing, mate? Yeah, very good, James. How are you? Not too bad, mate. Um, just as we were chatting about off air, uh, adjusting to this new way of working, I've I've been absolutely fine, I'd say, for the last three, four weeks. But then today, I've just been in like a foul mood and I've just felt really boxed <laughs> in and like struggling, just, struggling to see just, the light at the end of the tunnel, mate. Just my luck to come on air when you're in a, in a foul mood. <laughs> That's perfect. Right? I'm going to give you such horrible questions. I'm <laughs> yeah. just going to really grill you now, mate. Um, <laughs> No, how how are you doing? How are you, how is it treating you all the lockdown stuff? Because I imagine yeah. this will be this will go out in about five or six weeks. But um, God knows what world we'll be well, living in at that point. Well, hopefully, in five or six weeks, hopefully we'll be out and about again. Um, I hope so. Yeah, it's it, it's a it's a really odd one because um, yeah, I mean, working from home, especially when you do a job that's usually surrounded by people and talking to lots of people, um, it kind of provokes its own challenges. Um, I'm used to doing quite a lot of Zoom calls anyway. Uh, and yeah. we would do a lot of teleconferencing, but also just a huge part of, of what we do is just meeting people. And that, that, you and I are in a happening. network game. We're just in yeah. a network game and it's, and it's extremely difficult to do virtually. Although I've had some success on LinkedIn with a few posts recently that have gone relatively viral, which is good, but <laughs> like, yeah. that yeah. seems to be my only, uh, my only thing is like spending 20 minutes on a and, LinkedIn and, post. <laughs> and I did, I did, I did virtually attend an event earlier this week where they, they actually posted us cocktails in the post. Amazing. Uh, so this, little, this little cardboard thing comes out with a cocktail that you pour into pour over ice. Into <laughs> oh my god! Which That's I thought amazing. was like a, I thought that was like an amazing touch actually by that by that conference organizer. Um, so good. But uh, yeah, so, very um, innovative. So very innovative, and um, and it, it did make it feel a little bit more special attending something. Yeah. But, um, but actually, one of the great things has been, as you say, because everyone's in a similar position people who perhaps ordinarily a bit more closed off and, and wouldn't be doing things online are now starting to join the online community a lot more, particularly yeah. around telephone calls and video calls. Yeah. Um, so, so actually I, I guess I'm talking to people on a phone who ordinarily you might wait for a face-to-face meeting, but you can actually just get hold of them now because there is, who knows when that face-to-face is going to happen. And you can, you can start moving point, things actually. I've not actually talked about that in any detail with anyone about the fact that it might drop the barrier for as you say waiting for a face-to-face when actually it might be the new thing to just be like oh let's just jump on a let's just jump on a video call because it's never really been the next step after telephone has it it's always been a kind of a if you can't do it in person then let's land back on video so actually that's that's an interesting point and what i've always found fascinating is i mean you and i are old enough remember when people didn't have mobile phones and so so if you wanted to call someone you call their landline and then if you wanted to talk to them you'd, you'd actually go see them in person 
and occasionally on my mother yeah. would force me to write a, a letter to a pen pal or something, right? But basically, it was, if you want to speak to someone, pick up the phone or go and see them. And now we have this whole um, tranche of different layers of communication. Yeah. So the number of emails I've done previously where I'm, we have a full-on email exchange to figure out a time to have a call. And you look at it and just think, in the time that we've both been emailing each other, we could have, <laughs> we could have just spoken. <laughs> and and, uh. and one, one of the silver linings is I think that that barrier to just picking up the phone that seems to have crept in in the last few years, hopefully starting to, to, to go away. Let's hope so. Yeah, Let's hope, hope so. Some of the linings we get in. I was going to say, so um, this is this is going to turn into like a catch up between you and I, which I yeah. hope is still valuable for listeners. But um, I saw this video the other day talking of phones and talking about us being old enough to remember when you had to dial a phone. You know, the, um, the phones where you've got to like literally turn the thing to, to in, in inverted commas, dial a number. So you've got, yeah, you've got yeah. to put your fit and then turn the, the thing around. They, they, there's this video on YouTube of like, putting those phones and, and other objects from that era in front of like 16 year olds and just like watching them try and work it. Absolutely incredible watching them try and use this phone. They have absolutely no idea. They're just treating it like they're all individual touch screens. They're just, they, they're panicking. Incredible. That, but that um, poor, showing our age, poor, mate. Well, no, but also showing how, how UX has really improved, right? So like my, my, <laughs> Interesting. my one year old now reaches for my iPhone and he will swipe on it and try to press it. But he gets that if he touches a screen in different bits, different things will happen and he's one years old um and if a 16 year old can't figure out how a dial phone works, <laughs> exactly right. I, I, I blame the dial phone yeah absolutely fair enough um so look i mean talking of innovation talking of ux ui um investors of which you are um are picking the world that we live in next you're picking the best the best ux the best you the best ui the best new innovation so um, dude, you've had an incredible background from, from the early days of Babylon to where you are now as an investor for Optum Ventures. So it'd be great for you to tell our listeners your story, sir. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess like with all good stories, it doesn't really begin where you think it begins. <laughs> so in, in all honesty, like I, if I cast my mind back to, it's 1997, I'm 11 years old and I live in Northwest London. Uh, and I guess I was always that kid in the playground who um, had an eye on an idea, right? So there's, you know, in every, everyone will relate to this, I hope, but in every school, in every year group, there's always one kid who's selling sweets that they bought from the newsagent, or in our days, it was selling um, um, Magic the Gathering cards or Premier League stickers, <laughs> That's it, you know, yeah. reselling them onto your mates. So I, I was always that guy. Yeah. And Pogs, exactly, Pogs. Yeah, Pogs <laughs> are a big thing, man. Pogs are, Pogs are big money, you know. But don't, let's, let's not go to the Pog game. But anyway... Um, <laughs> But um, but it was I, I was always I was always um, that kid, and um, but I was also you know good at school yada yada yada, and so um, it, it it made complete sense that when I was eighteen years old, thinking about what are you going to do for a career, a respectable career is what beckoned, um, because frankly not many Indian mothers are running around telling people that their kid is a pogs agent, <laughs> but um, but being a doctor is is good stuff. And so I, I decided at the time going to medical school would be the right thing. My parents didn't really push me either way. Um, they were just happy that I'd kind of picked something that I wanted to do. But I applied to medical school. Um, I got into Oxford, uh, which was, uh, and spent the next six years there, which was an incredible experience. Um, spending a lot of time as an undergraduate, some of my best friends and people I spent time with were people who weren't studying medicine. They were studying all different fields of economics and uh, finance modules and mathematicians and physicists and biochemists and everything else in between. Um, 
and uh, and his and humanities as well, which is really important and often underlooked, overlooked, I think, in our yeah. education system. But um, but but the net result of that was I spent six years while studying for my medical degree, being exposed to lots of different ideas, and being exposed to people who thought about the world differently to how I thought about it or how I'd been raised to think about it, and that was really important because when I left medical school, whilst I was trained and actually really enjoyed being a doctor. Um, the idea stuck with me that the world isn't necessarily in the curriculum which you've studied and it's not necessarily in the boxes that you understand. There yeah, are things that happen in other boxes that you don't understand. And from time to time, it's fun to have a poke and rummage and see what's in those boxes instead. Um, so I, I, I left medical school. Um, I moved back to London because I was home um, and I worked as a doctor in the NHS for four years. Uh, eventually doing core anaesthetics training, which I think you did as well, right? Oh, I did indeed. And, Very um, familiar to me. Yeah. So they did, did F1, F2, as it was called then, I think it still is now. And I did core anaesthetics training, CT1, CT2. And, and I was introduced by a couple of friends of mine who were um, you know, very outward looking from medical school. Um, and they were exploring uh, other potential careers. And, and kind of the few of us club together really started to look at things and realize that for, for a variety of different reasons for each of us, um, there was probably going to be something else out there that we weren't getting from our NHS jobs as doctors. And so probably the right thing to do is to go out and try and find that other thing. And so I, I dabbled, I, I looked at pharmaceutical businesses and you know, the big pharma GSK, they all have these, um, these kind of programs where they bring physicians along and that, that didn't really feel like it was for me. Um, and then via a friend of mine from my undergraduate years, uh, I heard about a guy who was, um, starting an online healthcare company. Um, and so uh, my friend said, look, I've got, I know this guy, I've met him through work. My, my friend is a management consultant. So I met him through work um, and he's looking for smart doctors to come and help him to build a new type of healthcare company. I think you should go talk to him. So um, kind of dolled up a CV, sent it across. My friend made the intros and I met Ali Parza, who's the CEO of Babylon. Uh, in a hotel bar because I don't think he had an office at the time, um, and and we basically talked about how technology could be used to change the way in which healthcare was being delivered, and I, and I must confess that was probably the, having looked at all sorts of different industries and different things you could do with a medical degree, that was probably the moment it clicked. Yeah. And I thought right, right, ah, I get it. it. It to me, what what he was trying to achieve in building that business and what I think he has. He is achieving and will achieve and will go on to achieve even more of is um, it really captures the zeitgeist of, of that era where actually we realized almost as a species that it's possible to take tools that are used in other industries um, and have transformed the way in which other aspects of human life, human interactions occur and apply them to healthcare. And the benefit of doing so is that you'd get improved clinical outcomes, which as a physician, it's still something, you know, to me, that's actually number one, right? You've, you've got mm. to make people better, otherwise what the hell are we doing? Um, and build businesses that can drive these changes and do so profitably. And I, I know, and unusually perhaps for someone from a, a healthcare background, because I know it's not often spoken about in healthcare circles in the UK, um, but fundamentally I think, you know, people get out of bed and they may be passionate about their job, but they do have to get paid. And if you're an employer, you have employees and they will have mortgages to pay. So you've got to make a profit. And so it is, it is not unreasonable to say that we can improve outcomes and we can change the way in which patients are cared for for the better and we can make some money doing so. And to me, that was a, a, really, a, a really delicate but, um, but fantastic blend 
of two things that I cared about, which was one, medicine and helping people, and two, frankly, making some money. Um, so it must have been interesting at that, at that point in your career as well, to have that conversation with someone who is a proven innovator because, you know, he'd run circle by that point, hadn't he? So he'd built, you know, he'd built a big business and, and all the rest of it in healthcare. I, I can imagine, I mean, I can, I can picture myself, you know, finishing CT2 and, and just crying out for that kind of conversation. And I, you know, I went looking for it absolutely everywhere. And, and by that point, I suppose like, you know, I'd spoken to some startups and all the rest of it, but I think the ambition that that you obviously experienced in that conversation was something that I don't think many people, many doctors, many clinicians at all would have been even party to, you know, that, that and, and which has gone on to be proved, right? I mean, the, the level of ambition of Babylon is met by very few, if any, you could argue. Um, and, and I think it must have been super interesting to have that conversation before it's, you know, at, at its very inception. Yeah, and, and, and you know, he's, he's an ambitious guy and he's an ambitious company. But, but what I would say is that I think, I think conversations like that are out there, but they seem to only happen to people who put themselves out there. Yeah, and they're exactly. looking for those conversations. So, you know, and since I, I, you know, I get phone calls on a weekly basis um, from physicians in the UK saying, uh, you know, how do I, and further abroad sometimes actually, you know, how do I, how do, I do what you've done? How do I break into industry? <laughs> yeah. How do I go into finance? Whatever it is, right? And I always say to them, firstly, Maybe you don't want what I've done because there are pros and there are cons. You know, so you, you and I say so similar on that regard. Yeah, mate. You're, <laughs> yeah, you're seeing one side of it, but there's a whole other side which you may not be aware of. So take caution here. And secondly, um, you know, step one is probably, frankly, you know, getting out of it. And it's difficult to say that we're in a lockdown right now, but <laughs> getting getting out and talking to people, like, or reaching out to people on LinkedIn, finding people on Twitter who are prepared to have a conversation. I find it amazing because. It, people are generally speaking quite happy to talk about themselves and I'm no exception. Mm. And so if you say to somebody, you know, can I, can I call you and you can, you can, I want something from you. People aren't interested in having that conversation because who's got time to start having, giving away freebies all day long. Right. Yeah. And if you say to somebody, can you, can you talk to me about yourself and just tell me, you know, about yourself, it appeals to the inner narcissist in everybody. And I, it's incredible actually the, the number of people you can reach if that is the ask that you're making of them. So what I would say is that, yes, it, to a degree, there was some luck. Of course, there was luck. Um, it was also helped by the fact that I just built these relationships with people outside of the field of medicine um, over very many years. And I guess when an opportunity came up, there was a degree of naivety mixed with just curiosity. Yeah, good mixed for you. With a degree yeah. of no, Nothing to lose, right? Yeah. Just let's go for a chat with the guy. Um, that said, I remember putting on like a really smart suit and tie and sitting in this hotel lobby, everyone's dressed casually because I'd never been to a meeting like this before. I had no idea what to yeah. do. And, um, and you know, and it, those little experiences all build up and, and they teach you that if you reach out, often you'll find things, Yeah, but you've got to reach out first. And so from that conversation then, what happened next? Um, so I, I ended up doing initially some consulting work with Babylon, um, right when they were very first starting out. Um, and then joined the business full time. Um, so I first came across them in 2013 and I was doing oh, wow. bit, kind of bits and pieces when I was still a full time anesthetics trainee. Um, this was weekends and nights, you know, whatever spare time I could, I could um, cobble together. I was kind of putting into this project as I thought of it. Um, and um, I was getting married that year as well and kind of organizing a big Indian wedding and basically. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that was a, that was an interesting experience. And then, and then I, um, 
I basically got to the point where I was coming to the end of my core anesthetics training program. It was, it was it's a stick or twist type situation there, right? You either enter the next phase of training, which is another three or four years, and and then you're a, you're a consultant, um, or or you know if, if this is a time you want to take a pause, take a break, that's a very natural break point that I think yeah. lots of people look at. And, and to me, it was I I um, told my my <laughs> I told my my parents um, and I suspect my in laws as well that this was a you know a one year break was going to go and try something different, but I'd probably be a doctor again at the end of it. That's and exactly then, what I used to say. And then, oh, and I, but actually, I, 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 do, I, I remember calling my, my, um, them to answer my wife and some of my friends and, and just saying, you know, having a chat with them all and just saying, um, uh, I, I just don't think I'm going to go back. Like, I think I found something, a field of human endeavor that I, I just really like what it can achieve and I like what I can achieve within it. Um, and if I can be part of something that goes on to improve a lot of people's lives and yes, make a bit of money alongside it, that would be great. So, um, so I, I basically left the NHS in um, 2014, in, it was the summer 2014, and then went into Babylon full time at that point. Um, and it was you know, just an incredible roller coaster. Um, one of the greatest learning experiences uh, I think I could have asked for. I, looking back, I now realize how, how privileged I was to have those insights mm. at the time. It, it was just running from one thing to the next. Um, Ali was a really great mentor and um, a, a very good friend to me, still is. Um, and it taught me a lot uh, about how, how you build businesses, how do you manage people, the importance of relationships and keeping good relationships with people. Um, how do you get a feel for whether the, the products and services you're giving are, you know, are going to delight your customers? Um, how do you think about pricing stuff how do you think about how much to charge what is the value of what you're doing like all of these things as many of you many of the listeners in kind of early stage startups will know it's just bubbling below the surface many startups these are the you know, fundamental questions of how do you grow a business mm. but it but it was incredible and i spent i was there until um it was uh 2016 so i think it was february time 2016 and basically what had happened in that time was the business had really expanded at babylon um, it, it went from you know, just all of us being able to sit around a table um, to, you know, at that point, it must have been about 100, maybe 150 employees. We'd moved offices, we'd outgrown the new offices as well. And, um, you know, the company had raised significant capital at that point. It, it closed a $25 million Series A. Um, and I realized at that point that um, growing businesses, particularly technology businesses, um, it, the product is absolutely important. Customers are completely at the center of what you're doing and, and they should be there. But you've got to kind of know how the money stuff works because otherwise, um, you know, there's a real risk that you could be trying to build something that isn't financially viable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and one thing about Ali with his you know, background in investment banking and he had, some, he had a great CFO, he's still a very good friend of mine, David Kellner. Um, and David is, went into BC Investing and now I think he's an MD at an investment bank. But, um, but you know, these guys understood how money worked, which is really important because it's a responsibility paying your staff salaries. You've got yeah. to get how the money works. And that was something which I, as, a, as someone who was leading product uh, R&D and developing new products, I, I just wasn't getting a lot of exposure to. Um, so I thought, well, what better way to learn about how money works in early stage businesses than financing them and being part of the financing story. Mm-hmm. So I met some of the VCs in the fundraising process and I thought they, they looked like they had a really cool job. Um, so I, I, um, I got introduced again then to, uh, to a venture capital business that was just setting up, a company called Mercer Asset Management, as it is now. It was a tiny little um, outfit at the time. Um, 
and uh, kind of 22 million pounds worth of other people's money and some cash on its balance sheet, um, which had raised from a syndicate of investors, uh, about 70 million of cash. And so the, um, the, the appeal was, look, this is another startup, but this is now a financial services startup. We're going to yeah. grow a venture capital business. And um, do you want to come here? And, and we'll, you, can, you can do a lot of the healthcare and life sciences investing, which seems like a pretty important thing that we're doing. Uh, and I will teach you how you know, the mechanics of how you make an investment and how to learn about investments. So, you know, sat, sat down with Ali and just said, look, I think this is the next right step for me. Um, and we left in amazing terms. Um, as I say, still, we're still in good terms, still a very good friend of mine. Um, and um, it's someone that I've turned to for questions from time to time. Um, and, uh, and I left then to join Mercy and I spent the next three years there um, building a, what later turned out to be now one of the, um, certainly one of the most um, active venture capital managers in the UK. Um, they're growing their assets under management from kind of 22 million when I started. And we went around, we tried to grow our business, we tried to grow the amount of money we managed. And by the time I left, it got close to about 500 million. Wow. Um, and I think, I think it's expanded since, even in the last year. Um, and again, incredible team, uh, great CEO called Mark Payton, who was um, that, a great mix of uh, entrepreneurial, daring, but also scientists. So really understood the technologies his team were investing in. Um, uh, a great boss called Peter Dines, um, who was an experienced entrepreneur, had built and sold businesses in the medical device space previously, um, and was you know, always on hand to help guide me when I needed it. And so it was just, it was the right next job for me um, to learn how to, to do deals. So I ended up focusing on healthcare investing whilst at Mercia, as well as helping to, I led the research team, which meant I helped to think through corporate strategy and how to build out this business as a whole. Um, again, combine the two things I, I, I find the most interesting, like healthcare and also how do you grow businesses. Those two things I think are just, for me, they're, they're the nexus. The nexus of those two points are where I find it the most fun. Um, and then uh, three years kind of rolled by, and, um, and I have to say kind of Optum Ventures uh, newly arrived on the scene in the UK. Um, for context, uh, Optum Ventures, which is where I am now as a principal, is a US venture capital business it, uh, it, it manages money independently, but on behalf of a single source company called United Health Group, which, if you're not familiar with it, is, is one of the largest healthcare companies in the world. Um, it's, a, it's a fortune five or six business. It's huge. Uh, and they, they had some success with their Boston office. They were setting up a London office to make investments globally into early stage healthcare technology companies. Uh, and they asked why I'd come on board as a principal. So I joined there in May of last year. And that's kind of how I ended up here. Wow. There's so much to be said about, you know, first of all, creating your own luck, but second of all, you followed what you enjoyed. It's really interesting that you obviously you learned for, it sounds like in, in some parts, almost being the right hand man. And, and, um, I guess, as you say, you know, clinical product, you, you're building the product for Babylon and all the rest of it. And you were learning from, from Ali Pass, who's gone on to, you know, build Babylon to what it is now. So you had a, an incredible, um, apprenticeship from from a very seasoned and successful entrepreneur and it's it's interesting to me that you didn't then go and start your own startup or go and raise money and do, and do that side of things instead you actually had the conviction to be like well hold on a minute actually for me personally 
I want to go and pursue finance. And that's actually not something that I've heard a great deal of, but it's clearly something that you decided that you wanted to do because you'd spotted some people that you considered role models and thought, well, they have the, you know, the rounded experience that I want. And actually that's what I want to go and do. And you didn't, you didn't succumb to the, I don't know, you know, the Silicon Valley thing of, you know, you go to Google, you go to LinkedIn and then you start your own startup, you raise a million quid and you try and get bought out by one of the, one or the other, you know, you didn't, you didn't go down that traditional route. You actually just thought, well, actually I know what I enjoy. I know myself and I've got the kind of self-awareness and conviction to go and do it, which I think is, it's a really interesting step and I really like it. I think it's important to, a few, there's a few points maybe just unpick it a bit. Like, firstly, um, I never thought about jobs. I always thought about the people I'd be working for and whether I'd learn something from them. Mm. And, and that, that made, has, has made a huge difference in my career today because I, I have always and still do work for people who are uh, incredibly smart, incredibly knowledgeable, and I feel teach me a lot. And I'm really grateful for that. And that's, you know, that's, an incredible, that's a great perk of a job if you can get it. Um, I appreciate not everyone does, but so far I've tried to optimize for that. And as a result, I've always been learning and then adding value to myself kind of in the, in the modern parlance. Of this yeah. um, the, the, the second thing is also then around um, figuring out what is it you want to do and, and why do you want to do it? Mm. So th- there was a side of me just thinking, you know, maybe I should go start my own company, but what kind of company? You know, and what, what, why would I want to just pick a random idea that I found <laughs> just lying around, you know, musing about it at the bus stop, let's go do that. I mean, you know, why would I, why would I want to stop learning from one, from one mentor unless there was something really extraordinary that I wanted to go and do? And, I did, and frankly, I didn't have an idea that I you know, definitely wanted to go away and do. Yeah. Um, but what I did know was that there was, a, there was one of these boxes, you know, of knowledge that, that called how to finance and run the money stuff of businesses. And I didn't, I didn't have that box and I wanted that box. I knew mm. that's what I wanted next. Um, I wasn't sure what I was going to do once I got and what the next step would be after that. And to a degree, I guess we're all still figuring it out. Mm. But in the process of doing so, I actually found an industry and a profession, which I really enjoy, which is um, investing in these companies, helping them to grow, helping them to uh, adapt to new challenges. I mean, you know, times like this with coronavirus, it's a, it's a, a prime time actually for, uh, for businesses to adapt and thinking about how do you do those adaptations uh, and how do you support the CEOs uh, and the management teams that are doing that. And you've got to be, if you're going to get into investing like, like the way that the venture capitalists do it, to a degree, you've got to be comfortable. Um, you could be comfortable that you're not John Lennon, you're Brian Epstein, right? You're not there. You're not the rock star at the front. You're the manager behind the scenes. And that doesn't mean that, what you're doing isn't important or isn't valuable, but you're, the, the company is run by, by the management team and by the CEO and the founders and so on. And your job is to help them. And once you kind of come to that balance, actually realize it's, it's a really fun job to have. And I'm very privileged to work with um, incredible entrepreneurs, um, many of whom, nearly all of whom actually teach me things whenever I talk to them. Um, and you know, if I can be a part of the journey that helps them to build incredible businesses that help people, that's good enough for me. That's fantastic. Good for you. And actually it does sound like you enjoy it and it does sound like you've, you've found 
what you should be doing in the world as well, because it's, it, it, I can even hear it in this call, right? You, you, you're getting joy from doing all of these things. You like your position in it. You, you seem to like the generalism of it as well, from all the different skills and things that you need in order to be an investor. It sounds like you really enjoy that, the, the breadth of the skills and the different things that you do in a day. I mean, before we go on to talk about Optum in, in detail, I mean, what, what what is the what is the day of of Ash Patel as an investor? What does a what does an average day and average week look like for you? So so we're not having an average day a week right now. But, uh, <laughs> we're certainly but, uh, not. It's definitely right, yeah. Uh, yeah atypical. I think, at yeah, the yeah, it's, it's definitely atypical. Um, but but what is what is an average day look like? So I um, let's say I, know, I tend to get up. Um, I don't, I'm not one of these. You hear these people who wake up at like you know four in the morning <laughs> before you've even had your Weetabix they've conquered the world I'm not one of those people <laughs> but I, I wake up at like you know 6 37 ish um I live in North London I'm about 30 minutes from my office my, my day is really varied but generally speaking it follows a pattern of spending time looking at new companies which you which you're thinking of investing in and uh, and kind of running a process and we've you know, we've got two, three now incredible associates uh, um, at Optum Ventures who help us um, help people leading deals. Yeah, um, and by that, first. do you mean you spend time every day then looking at new decks? Absolutely, yeah. So, like that. Is, how long do you it. spend on a deck? Depends on how long the deck is. Um, you know, sometimes people will send us, um, uh, you know, big tomes of hundred slides, and I, not, I'm to be honest with you, I'm not going to read a hundred slides. <laughs> um, and sometimes people send us three and you think, well, I basically know nothing between yeah. the start and the end. I, I actually don't know what your company does. Yeah. Um, but, but on average, um, you know, what you want to do is you want to read the materials. You want to look up facts, new facts that materials presented that perhaps you weren't aware of. And then try to put those facts into your framework of how you think that particular market might work. Yeah. And so although reading the deck itself is... Um, you know, you could flip through one of those things in you know five ten minutes if you felt like it, but actually the work that goes around it is more important because the you know a good deck will present information which will inform the reader of something they didn't know something about, and so I personally think it's incumbent on that reader to look it up and you know put that fact in context, understand what does that person mean when they use that phrase, what is what part of the market are they trying to address, what technology solution they're proposing, how is that different? So actually, the follow-up work can take some significant amounts of time. So it's not unusual for even just a, you know, people think, oh, you're flicking through a deck. It could still be, you know, measured in hours, an hour's worth of work. Would not be an unreasonable length of time to spend reviewing, yeah, reviewing an interesting kind of introduction material. And so, uh, so that's half your day by the sounds of things. <laughs> what do you need the yeah, other so, half so of the day? So the other half is, so then, you know, we have meetings with companies uh, who we've seen the, the initial materials and there's enough there to kind of, to warrant actually this is, looks like it could be within the, um, within the the mandate of our fund, and by that, when investors mm. mean that, usually when investors get money, they don't they don't just have the right to go and invest any old thing they feel like. The person yeah. who's giving them the money has said, "We want you to go and invest in these kinds of things." Nice. So you know, so we will, and that's good because it helps you to close off the walls a bit and say, actually, you know, if this is a you know, very interesting business, but fundamentally, it's got nothing to do with healthcare. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, that's that's just not for us. Um, but we're lucky that we get to see a great number of deals that actually do fit into into our field. We meet with those those companies. We may um, spend time then with those management teams, getting to know them, um, having chats like this. Quite frankly, yeah. where you you just get to know the person behind it. 
Yeah. What are their motiv- motivations, their drivers? Which is incredibly important. Incredibly important. And uh, at Optum Ventures, are you, what stage are you guys looking at? Just tell me roughly, you know, top line figures, you know, what's your check size? What do you look to take roughly? What sectors? Just talk me a bit around the thesis. So, so, so the, the, the thesis is, for the Optum Ventures Global Fund specifically based in London, that um, there should be... Um, superstar businesses coming out of every corner of the world right and so if we if we unpick that a bit what do we mean by that we mean that you should be able to build very um impactful and highly revenue generating and profit and high profit generating businesses from pretty much any corner of the planet it doesn't have to come from just the us it doesn't have to come from just london or berlin or anywhere there's innovation happening everywhere but what we recognize is that for companies to really succeed at scale, they have to operate in large markets where they can, there's the opportunity to have very high revenues occurring. And at the moment, um, if you look at Europe as a whole, whilst there's fantastic innovation, the markets are generally speaking quite small and fragmented. And so yeah. um, there are two major markets in the world where you can go and, and achieve $100 million worth of revenue, if that's what your target is. And that's the US and that's China. And what we're primarily interested in are businesses whereby they've built their products in the domestic market, um, they've validated it. So that could be, you know, key opinion leaders or the users. It kind of makes it kind of makes sense to a bunch of people, and maybe even some of those people are prepared to pay for it. And the next question the company has is, how do I make this go really big? And if you want to go really big, you probably need to be in the US. And so we help those companies figure out how do you break into the US. Um, we've got because all our capitals come from United Health Group. We have great connections there, and we can help ask some of those people to help us to understand the markets they're operating in. Um, and so our startups can get access to insights on the market, which are not immediately obvious if you're on the wrong side of the Atlantic. Um, and, and they can scale in that direction. Um, and as a result of that, coming back to the original question around numbers and top lines and so on, mm. um, there's, there's a certain stage you've got to be before you're ready for that kind of jump. You know, two guys with an idea in a shed are probably not ready to, to go to America and turn up and just start doing it. There's yeah. a degree of maturity of existing business you need to have. So it's, we're finding and we're exploring this because we've only been doing this since, I've only been doing this certainly since uh, May of 2019 at OV in London. And, and OV London has only really been running since January of 2019. So just over a year now. Um, we're finding that these are businesses that are typically raising either a late Series A or a Series B. So they've had some institutional capital previously. Okay, yeah. Um, they are... Um, they have, they've, they've been able to build a, a version of the product which could be ready to take to market. Um, if it's regulated, so it kind of needs FDA approval or CE marking, we, we either really want to see that in place, have extremely clear line of sight as to how that's going to happen. Um, and what the company's real challenge is, is just how do we sell lots and lots of the stuff? We've built something really good. Everyone who uses loves it. Um, we, we know we're going to be legally allowed to sell it because we're going to get all the regulations in place. How do we sell lots of it? And that's the stage in which we typically want to invest. And those kinds of companies are, you know, we're writing checks of between five and 10 million US dollars. Okay. And the companies are typically raising between 10 and 20 million US dollars. Um, sometimes they raise a lot more, sometimes they raise a little bit less. And sometimes we can write bigger checks and we can write slightly smaller checks. But that's the ballpark. Um, yeah. We're not typically doing seed deals uh, or very early Series A deals. And it sounds like you guys are quite comfortable leading, right? Yeah, so we will lead. Um, and in the, the, um, the, for example, the last transaction which uh, which we did, I led a deal into a company called Oxford VR. Um, so we oh, yeah. their Series A. Um, 
and um, we led that deal. Um, equally, we can be um, led by other parties, and that means that another investor is setting the terms and, and writing probably the biggest check going into the round. And there's a, there's a kind of little bit that we're, we're filling the, the gap on. Um, uh, you know, we can co-lead and we can both work at it together from an investor perspective. So we're not we're not fussy, and we kind of want to play with everybody, which is great. Um, but for us, the important thing is is just getting really comfortable that there's a management team here and a technology here, which it makes sense for these people with that product to try and crack that market over there. Um, because it's, it's not an easy thing yeah. to do. Um, no, I completely agree. I completely agree. And I think that, you know, that scale piece is, is so important. As you say, there's, you know, as, as you've put it, two markets where you can genuinely see hundred million revenues in the U S and China. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of truth to that. There's obviously people that are, that might try and disagree with you, but there's obviously quite a lot of oh, truth to that. And, and, I, and, I, and I love being proven wrong. I absolutely no, love absolutely. it. No, absolutely. No, completely but, but, agree. But, but at the same time, generally speaking, um, you don't see many companies that reach that kind of level of financial success without operating one of those two jurisdictions. Yeah, in healthcare in the UK, in, particularly. In, health, like, you in know. healthcare in the UK, particularly, correct. And just looking at your portfolio now on your website, which, by the way, is absolutely gorgeous, your website. It is beautiful. Um, we, we have an, an awesome uh, person <laughs> in our Boston office who helped to design that. So shout out to Megan. who, who oh, um, Megan, who, you've uh, nailed it. It's absolutely yeah. beautiful. I will That's put awesome. the... Uh, the link to Optum Ventures in the description of this episode. So I encourage everybody to just go on their iPhones and click on this immediately because this is great, assuming it's re- as responsive as it is on my laptop anyway. But yeah, just looking at your portfolio, you guys, it's it's nice. You guys do digital health. You know, you're not, you're not pretending here. You're actually doing digital health deals, which is great. I mean, you're not kind of... I mean, because you, you know, you know what it's like, mate. With the definition of digital health, people like to stretch it all the way to biotech and pharma, and similarly, people will, you know, stick it all the way at the other end and like doing apps and all this stuff at seed stage. You guys have got a great spread. I mean, there's a, there's a few that I recognise here. Um, Let's get checked. I actually wrote a Forbes article on when they did their last raise. Um, yeah, really like it. I mean, I'm interested in your view on this because. At Mercia, I mean, were you guys more towards the life science end at Mercia and now you've come back into digital health? I mean, how, how, how do you view all of this stuff, call it? Because there's, there's a lot of hype that's talked about in digital health that perhaps hasn't, you know, shown the exits and, and lived up to it. There's, there's people that will now, you know, purely focus on life sciences because they don't believe in digital health. I mean, where do you sit on this and where does Optum Ventures sit on this? So, so, so the Optum Ventures position is, I mean, digital health is our focus. Um, and so, it. you know, we, we invest um, uh, almost exclusively now today in um, what we could describe as healthcare technology companies. Yeah, awesome. Um, emphasis on healthcare and system technology, right? So um, we, we are, and we, we, and we kind of judge whether it's a real kind of digital health or health, healthcare technology company by, you know, if this were to be launched in the market, what would it change? And yeah. if you can fundamentally change outcomes or the economics of healthcare, particularly in the US, um, to us that feels like a digital health or health tech company, whatever phrase you kind of want to use. Yeah. Personally, um, I, I kind of think of it as computational healthcare um, because what we're really asking the computers to do is perform a calculation or some kind of processing uh, in a way that a human being perhaps couldn't do or would struggle to do it at that level of speed. And in doing so, create a tool which changes the way in which a patient can be managed. So it's really the computational power of the, of the, of the product, which is helping to deliver you know, the massive value there. Um, and then when you think of it through that lens, 
actually it, it helps you to really kind of um, narrow down things where the technology is just totally vanilla and that there's yeah. really there's really nothing that's being created here that couldn't be created by somebody else um, and also it, it, to a degree it allows you to figure out in what part of the ecosystem you're really interested um, so you know there are there are and I, and I don't I don't um, I don't besmirch them because I actually think there, there are these are fundamentally potentially quite interesting businesses, but you know, apps that are just digitizing an existing paper process. Um, now that 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 could well be interesting if you can show me that that changes the way in which a system can a hospital system can run, and therefore we get these different outcomes compared to the old-fashioned way. But like you know, filling out a form on a, on an iPad or filling out on a piece of paper, <laughs> it's still filling out a form unless you do something clever with that information once you've got it, which yeah. changes the way you manage that patient. Yeah. And what sort of, I guess, subsectors of this are you particularly interested right now? Are there any clinical areas particularly? Are there any particular parts of the operational pathways or the clinical workflow? Are, are there anything, is there any particular point that you're trying to pick off right now? Or are you guys interested in the whole lot and you'll look at anything in this? So we're, we're interested in pretty much everything within this space. Um, there's been some areas we've, we've chosen to focus on um, increasingly recently. So even looking at our portfolio, it might jump out a bit, but uh, mental health, behavioral health yeah, is, in the yeah. US, that's, uh, we, we view that as a space in which digitization, the first wave of kind of, or the current wave, so I'd say, of digital health companies could really have an impact. Yeah, um, And so we've, we've got some really interesting um, investments into companies whose, um, you know, whose products are helping patients with behavioral health disorders, mental health disorders, um, and you know, we're really excited to see how that pans out because we just think that is one subsection of health that is often a bit unloved by healthcare services, certainly in the UK to a degree. Um, and actually digitization could transform the way that's delivered to patients. And actually, if you improve these people's um, mental well-being, mental health, that actually has a transformational effect on the rest of their lives. You know, people who previously couldn't do normal things like hold down a regular job you know, go to the supermarket, they can start doing these things again. That is a huge bird taken off the health system. It's funny, mate. I was um, on my on my last call, I was actually discussing this with somebody, this kind of addiction to impact that I think I've got and this other person on, on the call had got of it's all very well doing deals and, and getting the money in and, and that sort of stuff. And you, and, and you certainly get a buzz from doing those sorts of things. And I'm sure, as I'm sure you do when you, you know, you put that investment in and you see the potential, but there's something to be said and whether it's because we're clinicians by background or I don't know what it is, but there's something to be said about having that tangible feedback from somebody that turns around and says, this changed my life. There's just something about that, which just fuels me like, a deal cannot like just watching zeros in a bank account cannot it cannot fuel me for whatever reason as much as exactly what you've just said someone going to the supermarket and that fundamentally changing their life because they had ptsd and they had agoraphobia and they couldn't leave the hat you know there's, there's just something in it which is just completely transformational for me and i imagine at your level as an investor it's it's nice to see that at scale yeah absolutely and and, and kind of um i guess that's when people that's the kind of thing which piques our interest, shall we say, when we first see something. If you can see that potential and see how we map out, you know, the rest of the diligence process is trying to figure out is this going to be doable or not. But, um, but it helps if there is a vision and a story that you're introduced to, which you think, actually, if, if that works, that's freaking awesome. Yeah. You know, that, that could be transformational. And, and, and one of the great um, 
pleasures of healthcare as an industry as a whole. And I, I, didn't, I never appreciated this until I got into financial services. But in healthcare, generally speaking, everything you do helps somebody. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, which, which, is, which sounds glib, but actually, like, you know, making another pizza delivery app probably doesn't help that yeah. many people. In fact, if the cholesterol is anything to go, by, probably polishes <laughs> a few off. Um, but, but, the, but in healthcare, all of these products and services help somebody. Yeah. And, and yeah, and yet the businesses are sustainable and they make money and that's all really good. Um, but it's, 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 uh, it goes hand in hand. And that's one of the great things about being in this particular subset. Um, and you know, people, I guess people become healthcare investors. Yes. Because they like investing, but also because they like healthcare. Yeah. If you didn't like healthcare, there's a lot of other fields you could go invest in. There's no obligation to invest in healthcare if you don't want to. Yeah. So I kind of think that the community of people who can't feed into that ecosystem are actually really passionate about healthcare, even if they're on the investing side and you know, the market perception is they're just the, the guys in suit to care about making money. And, you know, to a degree that there may or may not be true. Mm. Um, but, but actually they chose to be in healthcare, right? They didn't, they, yeah. they, they didn't, they didn't go into Peter. Fintech. Yeah. No, I completely, I completely agree. Dude. So, Tell me then, what's the what's the future for for you? What's the future for Ashpatel? I mean, you've you've uh, you've completed health. Well, you've completed clinical medicine, sort of. You've completed the startup game, being part of Babylon. You've you've completed uh, the investment game, being part of um, Mercia and now Optum Ventures. I mean, what's next for you after the oh, financial first, bucket? Are there any more buckets first, you're trying to tick off? Firstly, I don't think there's any competing to be done there, right? <laughs> like you know, the 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 the, the medical game is interesting. My um. My my uh, my GMC license just got reinstated by yeah, the thing a few days ago. I don't know if you were yeah, yeah, same. And so um and so you know that that actually was a really um I've not been tapped on the shoulder or asked to do anything yet. Maybe another happened, right? But when it happened, that really triggered back to me. Just actually, um, there is an entire field of knowledge and skill in medicine that you know I, I if I'd stayed, I would have trained in and gained, but yeah. I didn't. And those people who've got that expertise, that's expertise I don't have. So there's like a degree of humbling, right? That like, you know, my friends who are consultant and ethicists now can fundamentally do things that I can't do. Yeah. You know, I never learned how to do. Um, with, you know, companies like Babylon, they are, um, you know, they're, they're just in- incredible machines now. Um, and they are, you know, scaling globally. And um, I wouldn't say I've completed startups by any stretch of imagination. <laughs> sure even, even the CEO would probably say that there's, there's still more things to be learned, right? We're always learning. And, um, and, and then from a uh, investing perspective, look, you know, Optum Ventures in London, we're just getting started, right? So we are, we're talking to lots of people. We're still making investments actively. The proof of the pudding, frankly, is also not just the money you put out, but actually how much money do you return? Absolutely. I mean, that, is, that, is, that is the objective. And it's, it's easy to lose sight of that, I think, particularly in recent times when there's just been so much money in venture capital. That yeah. almost, you know, for startups, raising money became the achievement. For yeah. VCs, raising new funds became the achievement. But actually, yeah. the the humbling thing is actually, well, you know, dishing it out. Fine, that's not easy, but you can dish it out. Now let's wait and see how much of it comes back. Yeah, and, and that and that's that's when I think you you know that's a that's a side of things which we're getting into, and there's a lot more to be done before we can say we completed it. Should we say? So you're in it for the long haul, dudes. Uh, actually, this is a long, this is a long game. And, you know, for anyone who's thinking about a career in, um, you know, maybe a physician or otherwise thinking about a career in finance, like VC is not a place to come and make a quick buck. Absolutely. You know, the, these businesses take time, they need nurturing, 
sure you can look up people who've made a lot of money being venture capitalists. Of course they exist, but they they didn't they didn't start doing it and you know a year later were billionaires. It, it doesn't work like that. It's just the wrong asset class. So um, and and that's fine. You know, incidentally, you know, if you enjoy building the companies, it, it's it's just a hell of a lot of good fun. Yeah, definitely. And for people that might want to get in touch with you, uh, obviously there's, um, they can obviously grab you on LinkedIn. Have you got a preferred method of contact if people want to chat? Uh, ping me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm cool. usually pretty responsive. Um, and, um, and you can always get in touch via our websites as well. Uh, but LinkedIn is usually the best way to get hold of, of me specifically. Perfect. And so Ash, I've, I've loved it. Love, love catching up with you. Um, it doesn't happen enough, I don't think, but I th- no, once, yeah. this, once we're out of lockdown, once we're, once we're through this section, I'd, I'd love to, or maybe I could post you a beer. Actually, we could have you a virtual beer, beer if I post it to you. It's all right. We'll post each other beers and then, then we'll be even. That's a good thing. Perfect. Love it. Love it. So let's definitely, let's definitely put that in. Um, but dude, yeah, it's been a pleasure having you on. Um, I, I guess the, the final thing to say is the way that we end these podcasts is, <clears throat> excuse me, I hand back over to you to summarize a bit about yourself, a bit about what you're up to at Optum Ventures and to close us out with any asks that you've got of our audience. So take it away, sir. Cool. So, Hey guys, uh, my name's Ash. Uh, I'm a venture capitalist working at a company called Optum Ventures where we invest in, healthcare technology companies that think that they can change the way patients are cared for and the way in which health systems work. Um, I'm a physician by training. I helped to build product at Babylon Health for a while. I've been investing for a few years. I'm really interested in speaking to entrepreneurs at any stage of their company's life cycle um, where, they, where they think they're building something that can change what we do for patients and what we would do for, for healthcare systems. Um, drop me a note on LinkedIn. Um, you don't have to be fundraising. It's actually often more fun to have these conversations when there is no deal to be done, but we're just learning more about what's going on. So uh, yeah, get in touch. Hey everyone, thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.